just went around the room and kind of introduced ourselves. Uh, so we kind of have a sense of who's here and why they're here. Uh, Y'all want to introduce yourself? You missed out on theirs. But, uh. <laughs> so I'm Mai. I'm Hispanic. I'm here to support him, so I'm already confirmed Catholic, so I'm just here for support. Not very good. I'm Sunny. Um, I am here to become Catholic um, out of um, curiosity and respect for her side of the family. So. Well, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you all for sharing a little bit about your story. It helps me to know a little bit about you. Although this is, will be my last time with you, but it, it helps me to know a little bit about who you are and, and why you're here. Uh, so uh, this morning we have a little bit of time to think about a next topic. Uh, last week we talked about divine revelation, uh, and we talked about the scriptures, and we talked about um, how we in the Catholic tradition believe that we hear God speak to us. And so I talked about two ways, uh, what we sometimes call natural revelation and supernatural revelation. Uh, we believe that we can discover things about God uh, by studying the world around us, by studying our own hearts. Uh, but we also believe that God has spoken to us, and by spoken I'm using that somewhat as a metaphor for ways that God has communicated, not only in words, but also in actions. Uh, you know the saying, "Action, our acts speak louder than words. Uh, and we believe that's true also. We don't just say that God has given us words. We say that God has done things to communicate truths about what God is like. Now, when we finished last week, we'd, we kind of looked at, at the Bible and how it's structured and what the central events are in the scriptures. And um, there are a couple of more things I wanted to say real quick before we transition to the creed. And I'd like to say a few things about the creed, and then I want to stop and see what questions you might have about the creed. Uh, I did this uh, last week over at St. Michael's after I left here, uh, so hopefully I, I don't repeat things that I said last week. It's all a blur in my mind now after uh, a week. I talk all week long, and so I, I don't know what all I said and to whom I said it. So anyway, so if I start to repeat myself, just throw something at me or, or, or say something. Uh, but I, I think it'll be different, uh, significantly different from what we did last week. Uh, so there were a couple of, of terms I wanted to uh, mention to you uh, related to Scripture, uh, just to make sure that you uh, have some familiarity with them. One of them is the word inspiration. Another one is the word uh, canon. And uh, let's see if there's anything else. Uh, oh, I want to talk a little bit about the senses of Scripture. Not much, just a little bit. You probably read about these things in the catechism assignment, I think, that you had. Um, first, let me say something about inspiration. Uh, the word inspiration, when we talk about the Bible, uh, is... Um, and, and remember one thing real quick before I say that. Um, remember, the scriptures in the Catholic tradition are... Uh, a privileged source of God's message to the world. So they're very, very important. By privilege, I mean they're different than anything else that we have. Uh, they communicate to us God's word, God's message, uh, but in a way that we need to be careful uh, about explaining. Uh, we don't believe the Bible is a collection of books that drop down out of heaven, uh, uh, you know, just in no historical context. We don't believe that the Bible is uh, a collection of books that people wrote when they fell into a trance and they weren't conscious while they were writing them. 
clearly the Bible, if you read the Bible, and some of you I'm sure have read some of it, and some of you may not have read much of any of the Bible, but if you read the Bible, you'll, you'll be able to pick up pretty quickly, just moving around it, just pick different books in the Bible, and you'll be able to pick up pretty quickly that they're very different books. Some of them are really hard to read, some of them are easy to read, some of them are poetic, and some of them are very, you know, sort of uh, uh, prose uh, type documents. Uh, there's all kinds of different literature that you have in the Bible. Uh, there's, like I say, there's, you could look at the, the, the spectrum of prose to poetry and all kinds of things in between. Prophecy, for example, in the Bible is an interesting genre or style of literature. And as I may have mentioned last week, in human speech, we communicate in different ways all the time. Uh, you probably listen to music, and the music probably has some poetic lyrics that are in it. Uh, we use metaphors, like I was using a moment ago. God speaks to us, uh, and, uh, and I don't mean just by that that God you know, is, is blowing air out of lungs and articulating words. I mean by that uh, something broader uh, than that. Uh, and so we as human beings communicate in lots of ways. We communicate by the expressions on our faces, on the, uh, the, um, uh, the sm when we smile at someone. That's a way of speaking or communicating, silently speaking and communicating to someone. Uh, if you roll your eyes when somebody's talking, that communicates something. When you, if you smile while someone's talking, that communicates something. Uh, if you laugh, that communicates something. So there's lots of different ways we as human beings communicate. Well, the Bible is no different. Uh, the Bible is a collection of books that communicate in different ways uh, about what God wants to communicate to the world, and that reflects the reality of, of the human condition, that we communicate in lots of different ways. Uh, and so the, the books in the Bible uh, reflect the unique uh, minds and experiences of the people who wrote the books. Uh, so when you go through the Bible, you are reading books written by human beings. But we believe that those books written by human beings are books also guided by God. And so there's a kind of double authorship to Scripture, that it comes from God through human instruments. Now this is a hard concept to understand. Uh, some have tried to come up with different um, you know, analogies to try to make it easier to understand. I like one, for example, take, a, uh, uh, take on a windy day uh, in the fall, so maybe today in your yard you might have, I have in mind, some leaves that are starting to fall off my trees, and so uh, if the wind blows uh, significantly at all, those leaves will move along. Now, when the wind blows them or carries them along, the wind doesn't destroy them, the wind lifts them up and carries them kind of gently along. Uh, I like to think about that as a nice analogy for what we mean by Scripture. The leaves are like the human writers, but they're being gently carried along by the Spirit of God so that what they write is both something they write and something that God is guiding them along to write, but not with, by a method of destroying their unique vocabularies their unique styles of writing, their unique experiences. Another analogy I sometimes like to use is of a, a wind instrument. Uh, I don't play any wind instruments, but, if, uh, but I can watch someone play them. And let's say you're playing a flute uh, or some other similar uh, um, uh, type of uh, musical instrument. And you watch the person that's playing it moving their fing fingers over the holes that are on the, uh, on the flute and cause it to make various different noises. And so the, the wind that blows through it is what gives it its volume, but there are unique ways in which those sounds come from the instrument. 
So there's two things at work. There's both the wind that blows into it as well as the sort of shaping of the sounds through the instrument that's caused by the fingers that are moving on it. And so think of, about that sort of double, double cause of what you are hearing. It's not just the wind and it's not just the instrument. It's the combination of the two that brings about the music. So it is with scripture. Scripture it has God as its primary force or author. But the human authors are guided along by God in such a way that they are truly engaged in writing, and so it's truly human and truly divine. This is something that makes it different from, uh, say, the Muslim belief about the Quran. Uh, Muslims believe that the Quran was given uh, sort of by an angel messenger uh, to the Prophet Muhammad, and the Prophet Muhammad would fall into trance-like states and have and dictate different parts of the Quran. And, uh, and Muslims believe that the Quran is an eternal book that is in heaven and is transmitted to Muhammad exactly as it exists eternally in heaven. Christians don't and Catholics don't believe that about the Bible. We don't believe the Bible is an eternal book that's sitting somewhere that was dictated uh, to writers down through the centuries. We believe that the scriptures are guided by God, but they come in true, truly human historical circumstances using human language in real concrete situations. Therefore, to interpret the Bible correctly, I have to put my, try to put myself in those situations. How would these people have read it? Uh, what did it originally communicate to the people who received the scriptures? If I do that, if I ask those kinds of questions, then I am looking for the literal meaning of Scripture. The literal meaning. Now, literal here does not mean uh, literal in contrast to figurative or allegorical, whatever. Literal here is just a word that means we're trying to find what the text meant as written by its authors originally. Okay? That's what I mean by literal. So if it's poetic, you interpret it as poetry. If it's some other form of genre, and there's lots of different kinds, we could spend this whole time easily just talking about the different genres or styles of literature that we find in the Bible. Uh, and we have to be attentive to those things. That's the literal sense of Scripture. But because we believe the Bible is inspired by God, we believe there's a common authorship to the whole of Scripture. So that leads us, say for example, let's say this is a timeline of the, the time period in which Scripture was written. Let's say, just for sake of argument, between... 1200 BC and about 100 AD, all the books of Scripture were written. So they're scattered out along this line. So maybe here you have Isaiah the prophet writes his book, or you have here Malachi writes a book, and here you have uh, Matthew, uh, uh, the Gospel, the New Testament, and so on. So you have these different writers in these different historical periods of time that write their books. How are we supposed to understand it? Well, if we're looking at the literal sense, we look at it as a collection of books written by human authors at different moments in history. And so I look at the Bible as a collection of books, and I look for its literal sense. The literal sense is, what did that author mean to say? What was he trying to communicate? But there's also another level on which I can read Scripture. Because it's inspired by God, up here we're acknowledging that it's written by humans. But if it's written by God as its primary author, then there should be an underlying unity to the whole of Scripture. So it's not a bunch of disconnected books. Since God is the one guiding along the process, there's a single author level on which we can read it, and here is what we call the spiritual sense of Scripture. 
the spiritual sense. And don't uh, don't take that to be some spooky thing. It's just or, or some you know uh, esoteric thing that you have to have fall into a trance to to be able to do this or something like that. That's not what I mean. I just mean that when you read the Bible in the spiritual sense, you see it in its overall unity. So I read the book of Genesis in light of the Gospel of Matthew. I read the Gospel of Luke in light of the Old Testament. In other words, I see it all as a, as a, as a, uh, uh, as a single unfolding through a historical process of the mind and will of God in his workings with human beings. And so I can see connections between all the various things that I find in the Bible. This is a really, really beautiful thing. Uh, for example, when you, uh, one thing that's a good practice to get into uh, before you go to Mass is to look at the readings for the day. And when you look at the readings, as we talked about last week, I think, we have an Old Testament reading, typically, followed by a psalm, followed by a reading from one of the letters of the New Testament, typically, and then a reading from the Gospels. And so it takes parts of Scripture scattered out over this historical timeline. It takes them and puts them together. If you read those texts carefully each week, you'll be able to find, if you work at it a little bit, you'll be able to find how all those texts complement each other. They're connected to each other. There's some similar theme that runs through them all. And we could do that. I'd do it with today's uh, scripture readings if we had the time for it, but I, we could get lost in that. But, uh, but, but do that. Uh, uh, take a look at the readings and see if you can see how they're connected together. A good homily you know, when the, the uh, deacon or, or priest uh, speaks about the scriptures, a good homily will oftentimes show you how those readings are connected together. Why do we do that? Well, in, that's part of the spiritual sense of scripture. That's showing how the message is unified, that it's all connected together uh, because God is its underlying author. There's a lot more to say about those things, but I just wanted to, to mention uh, that to you. That's what we mean by inspiration. This is inspiration, that God, through human authors, guided them along so that we have uh, the scriptures. And that's what we believe that they are. Um, one other thought on that. Oh, yeah, on the word inspiration. The word inspiration is used more broadly than that sometimes. We're using it in a technical sense here. So we might say, I was really inspired, you know, to go for a run this morning. Uh, that's fine, but that's not what we mean here. Uh, we could say, you know, that book was very inspirational. It really, you know, got me fired up or it got me, you know, my spiritual life really warmed up or whatever. Uh, that's fine, but that's not what we mean here by inspiration. We mean here something that especially and particularly and exclusively belongs to the scripture text. The scripture text, the Bible, is uniquely inspired by God. God guided along the writers so that what they wrote becomes foundational for us. Now, in the Catholic tradition, we believe that that should be all, you know, sort of enveloped within the tradition that guides us along in how to read it and how to apply it and how to live it. Okay, okay uh, uh, what about this word canon? This is not the thing that you use in a battle and, and fire things at people. Uh, canon of scripture here means, it actually comes to, the word comes from a Greek word that means uh, a reed, a reed plant, R-E-E-D. Uh, the reed plant was this long uh, plant that would grow in marshy areas, and uh, and it was used often as a. Uh, good morning, come on in. Uh, it was the reed plant was often used as a measuring device. So you'd put it up against something, almost like a ruler. 
you'd put it up next to something and then you could go measure something else and see if it's the same length. So um, um, the word read or canon, the Greek word for read, uh, came to be used to refer to the, uh, the scriptures which serve as a measure of what we teach and what we believe. So the scriptures function as something like a ruler uh, that, we, that allows us to gauge whether or not we are uh, thinking and acting the way that we ought to uh, in, in living out our faith. Okay? Uh, good morning. Welcome. Um, um, any, any questions about those? I, I just wanted to comment on these uh, three items that we didn't get to last week. Any questions about Scripture or divine revelation or anything we talked about last week uh, that we can finish up and then we'll transition to this week's topic? Okay. Now, our topic today is the, uh, the Creed and the Trinity. So let me introduce this subject, and then I want to pause and, uh, and see what questions you might have. I'm going to read the Creed slowly in just a minute. Who doesn't have one of these? Uh, copy of the Creed, anybody? You didn't get one? Everybody else have one? Okay, so uh, first let's think about what a creed is. The word creed uh, comes from a, uh, uh, a Latin word, credo, which means I believe. Uh, that raises an interesting question. What do we mean by belief or faith? Uh, I was reading something the other day that was really good on this, and it talked about how in the Catholic tradition there are different models or ways of thinking about what faith is. Because the, the notion of faith, or the idea of faith, is hard to explain in one concept. It's a multifaceted thing. So, uh, some talk about faith as a sin. That would be saying, faith is you know, accepting as true certain claims or beliefs. So, if I assent to them, that means I agree with them. So to believe, when I say I believe in one God, for example, as the creed begins, if I believe that, I assent to it as true. I say, yes, I agree with that. All right, so that's one way to think about faith. Another way to think about faith, and I'm going to draw these as overlapping circles because they overlap each other. Another way to think about faith is uh, as a kind of union with God. So when I say I believe... That means not just that I say it's true, it's that I have a kind of living awareness and connection with God. That it's not just something that I say I agree with, it's something that is a kind of existential reality. That in my life, right here and now, I'm living in a conscious awareness of a loving God. And that uh, is a real interior, it's inside of me, it is a real uh, aspect or foundation of my being. It's who I am. I'm a person that lives in union with God. 
that's a really deep notion of faith, and it's a very strong notion in our Catholic tradition. In fact, that's the goal of life altogether, is to be united together with God in heavenly happiness, and that's the essence of heavenly happiness, is union with God. And it can begin here and now through the uh, lived awareness of God in the depths of the soul. Another way of thinking about faith is as a kind of personal trust. This is very popular in uh, various forms of, of Protestantism. Uh, if you go to a Baptist church, for example, or you know many, many others, uh, there may be an altar call at the end of the sermon. So the, so the preacher preaches and then he invites people to come forward to receive Jesus as their personal savior. Uh, and, they, and they often will encourage a person to pray a prayer. You know, dear Lord Jesus, I've sinned. I want your salvation. I believe in you. I trust in you. Forgive me of my sins. And so the emphasis is on a personal act of trust in Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and this is not contrary to Catholic faith at all. We want to have a living personal relationship with Christ. Uh, we don't often talk about in exactly those terms or ritualize it the way that it's done in many of these churches. Uh, but it's not something that's, uh, that's foreign to Catholic faith. Another way of thinking about faith, a final uh, one I would mention to you, is faith as, uh, I'll use a fancy word and then I'll explain what it means, as performative. That's misspelled. Performative. Uh, that is, faith should be something that is active. That for me to be a, a real Catholic Christian believer means that my faith is put into practice. And so I love the outcast. I care for my neighbor. Uh, I do things to make the world better, to make the kingdom of God come alive in the world through my life. I do something about it. Uh, so this one has a kind of social emphasis, that Christian faith is an active, world-transforming reality. And it's got to show itself in what we do. Okay? And again, none of these are opposed to any of the others. These are just four ways of thinking about faith, which is a multifaceted thing. It's not just one thing. It's dynamic. Uh, it brings us into a relationship with God. It has to do with what we assent to. All of these are aspects of faith. So when I say, I believe in one God, think about all those different things. Think about those many dimensions of faith. Okay. Uh, now, so what, uh, when we talk about Creeds, there's a bunch of different creeds, but there are two really special creeds uh, that we uh, tend to emphasize in the Catholic tradition. One of them is the Apostles' Creed, which is shorter than the Nicene Creed, and the other one is the Nicene Creed, which is the one that you have in front of you on the piece of paper. The Nicene Creed was written in the 4th century, uh, 325 A.D., at the first ecumenical council of the church. There have been 21 of them, as I think I mentioned last week, and, uh, and the first of them was the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was called to deal with some serious challenges uh, to Catholic belief, in particular, about who Jesus was. Was he truly God? Was he man? Was he both? And how does all that work out? All right, so the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaean Council, the first Nicaean Council, what, uh, and Nicaea is a city in Asia Minor, uh, it was, the council was called to deal with those questions that arose. Now, much, you know, several centuries before that, let's get back to 
the last words of Jesus, according to Matthew's Gospel, before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, so Jesus told his disciples to go and baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So they went out and, and tried to convince people of the truths of Christian faith. And when people would accept those claims, they would be baptized. Now, their baptism was into this belief. This is the, what direction, uh, the direction of baptism. It points us to our understanding of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As time went on, you know, uh, when adults come to receive the faith, they would profess that faith uh, in front of the church. So they would say, I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they would be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit after they had professed this belief. So in time, they came to elaborate, the church came to elaborate or explain what exactly do we mean by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say those words. It's another thing to explain what they mean. And so they came to explain more fully what we mean by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's the Apostles' Creed. And then later, in the 4th century, the church expanded that creed to be more descriptive, more clear about what we mean about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because there were challenges and misunderstandings and misconstruals of things. And so the Nicene Creed was written to explain in greater detail what we mean by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? And it has survived the test of time. We still use it today, uh, 1,700 years later. We're still using this creed as the most foundational and clear statement of the essence of Catholic faith. Okay? So it's a really, really important document. Now, um, let me say a few things about the Trinity. The word Trinity is the word that we use as shorthand. There's a lot of words that we use in, in the, the realm of Catholic faith that are quick ways to describe something that's complicated. All right? So the word Trinity is a word that was uh, coined, I think around the second, third century, uh, the word was first used, I think in the writings of Tertullian, if I remember correctly, uh, who was an early Christian writer. Uh, he used the word Trinitas to try to express this idea that we find in Scripture that basically follows from the following observations. Number one, there's only one God. And there are many verses of Scripture that support this. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And so this idea that there's only one supreme God is an idea that runs through the scriptures, and, and you can find it in great clarity and insistence throughout the scriptures. So there's only one God. But the one God uh, is spoken of as Father in some texts, like for example when Jesus says, you know, someone asks him how we're supposed to pray, and he says, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So, uh, so the Father is God, we also have scriptures that speak about the Son as God. 
and I can give you lots of different references for each of these things. I saw these tracks over here. Uh, they probably, I haven't read them yet, but uh, they probably have some listings of Scripture. But I'll just reference a few. Uh, in John chapter 1, this is a classic text that's discussed in this context, uh, Jesus uh, is spoken of as uh, prior to the creation of the world, as the Word of the Father. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, it, it echoes Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Gospel of John, which tells us most profoundly about the identity of Jesus, begins by saying, in the beginning, the same beginning, when the world was created, the Word was already there. Uh, so, he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Greek word there is logos, uh, which means uh, reason or thought or um, uh, mind. And so, in the beginning was the Word. This, we get words like logic from it and so on. It has more to do with a mental word, not the spoken word. You think first, and then you say something. And so, in the beginning, in God, is God's Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, it says. The Greek preposition that's used there for with, it looks like this, pros. And it means uh, face to face with, turn toward. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face -face with God. There's this deep relationship that exists between uh, God and His Word. And then it says, and the Word was God. The Word was God. So, we're given this mysterious insight into something that existed, something that was the case, at the, at the moment that the universe was created, in the beginning, there is God face to face with His Word. And then it tells us a few verses later in verse 14, and the Word, the same one that's mentioned in verse 1, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So clearly the Word that is spoken of in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, which is there with God in the beginning, and is God, became flesh in Jesus, took on human nature. And so, according to John chapter 1 in the Bible, Jesus is nothing less than the incarnation of the one who has always been with God from the very beginning. He's there, and is in some mysterious sense God. So that presents a, a deep mystery for us, and we'll have to work on that mystery here. Uh, but uh, that's just one text among various ones that I could give you for this idea. I could give you Hebrews chapter 1 is another fantastic text for making the same point. Uh, the first letter of John, uh, the first several verses of that book is a fantastic place to go. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, there's a magnificent text there that, that communicates the same idea. So there's lots of different texts that support this idea that I'm presenting here. Um, and then finally, the Bible also speaks of the Holy Spirit as God. And I can give you lots of references for that, but let me just give you one interesting one in the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 5. There's a mysterious story, a strange story that's told. Of uh, It appears that the early Christians in the very earliest days, uh, they, they just spontaneously wanted to share 
their property and the goods that they had with one another. So if there were poor people in the community, the, those who had more would share with them, just spontaneously would share. And there was this couple, Ananias and Sapphira were their names, uh, who um, they sold a piece of land that they had and they brought the money to the church, to the apostles, and they gave the money to, to the apostles and said, um, we're giving to the church all the money that we got from the sale of the land. Well, that was a lie. They didn't really give all the money. They were giving part of the money and keeping some of it back for themselves. Now, there was nothing wrong with them keeping some of the money back for themselves, but they lied about whether they had given all the money. Uh, they presented it as if we give you all that we have, uh, that we got from the sale. So they were trying to make themselves look better uh, or try to make themselves look more generous than they were. And again, there was nothing wrong with them keeping the money. The problem was in lying about it. And so Peter, the Apostle Peter, confronts them about that and says, Why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. So he uses the words Holy Spirit and God interchangeably there. You have not lied to men, you have lied to God. And he says in, in the prior line, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. So, the, and, and there's lots of different texts that support the same idea. All of this is kind of bundled up together in Matthew chapter 28, the text that I mentioned earlier. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So those three terms are used in the baptismal statement. So when I become a Christian, when I'm baptized in the Christian faith, I am saying, I believe in this God who is revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what I'm saying. I believe in this God that we call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now here's the, here's the tough part. There's one God, Father's God, Son's God, Holy Spirit is God. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can't be reduced to each other. Uh, let me explain what I mean. I'm a father, a son, and a husband. I've got these three roles. But I'm one person standing in front of you. All right, so I'm one person with multiple roles. I'm a father, a son, and a husband. Uh, maybe that's what's going on here. No, it can't be what's going on here. Because when we see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit described in Scripture, they relate to each other in a way that you couldn't talk about me relating as father, son, and husband within myself. In other words, I'm a father, yes, but I'm not my own father. I'm a son, but I'm not my own son, and I'm not my own father. The fact that I'm a father relates me to my children, who are other than me. They're distinct from me. The fact that I'm a son relates me to my father. The fact that I'm a husband relates me to my wife. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the terms themselves point beyond themselves to another. So in the Bible, when we hear the, the Scripture speak about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relating to each other. For example, John's Gospel is full of this kind of language. Uh, we will see Jesus say things like, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Or uh, my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one will pluck them out of his hand, speaking of his disciples. Uh, he'll say, uh, you know, uh, I will send to you from the Father the Holy Spirit who will not testify of himself, but he will testify of me. Jesus says. Notice all this language. Uh, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit speaks of the Father and the Son, or speaks of the Son. And so there's all this language that indicates personal interrelationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? 
That's the point I'm getting at here in number five. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not each other in some important way. So that presents a kind of conundrum here. Well, then how can number one and number five both be true? How can it be that there's one God, but yet there are three that are spoken of as God, and you can't collapse them into each other because they relate to each other? So how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, there's been lots of attempts to try to, to, um, uh, to deal with this challenge. And I think the first thing we need to look at, and I'm going to make a few comments about this, and then I want to shift to your questions about the creed. So let me, let me say a few things about it. First, we need to look carefully at this word, one. What exactly do we mean by this word? The word is used in different senses. Like, for example, you can say, uh, I could say, um, um, you know, we are one group that's meeting in this room. Well, there's a bunch of us in here, but there's one group. Uh, I could say, you know, like the Bible does in, in Genesis chapter 2, when it describes the original creation of Adam and Eve, it says that, uh, you know, Adam falls into a deep sleep. Uh, you know, he looks around at the world that God had made, and, and uh, he sees all these animals, but he finds none that are like himself. And so he's alone. And so he, uh, God, the scripture says that God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and then God takes a rib from his side, the covering of the heart, and this is all profound symbolism in all this, you know, what do you do when you sleep? Well, you dream. And so the man falls into a deep sleep, so deep into his dreams, and God draws from his side the covering of the heart, and he forms for him a bride that comes from his own heart. And he awakes to find this woman, Eve, and he says, alas, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the text says, Man and woman will leave father and mother, and the two will cleave to each other and become one flesh. What God has joined together, do not let man tear asunder. The idea here is that in the, in the marital union, uh, when the male and female join together in the marital union, there's a oneness that results from that. Now, it's not a oneness of persons. You're still two people. It's another kind of oneness. Uh, it's a oneness of purpose. It's a, it's a, it's a physical union indeed, uh, because one is made for the other. There's a biological oneness that generates potentially life and family that comes out of that. And so there is a, a, a physical union. There's a life union. There's an emotional, psychological, spiritual union that takes place. And there's a genuine oneness there, but a oneness that is not solitariness. Like when, when Adam was without a bride, he was alone. When he found his bride, when he awaked from his deep sleep and found that his dreams had come true when he awoke from, from his sleep, now there's a new kind of oneness, a oneness of relationship, not a oneness of solitariness. He's not all on his own. He's with another, but he's one with the other. What we say about the Trinity the mystery of the Trinity. And I, when I use the word mystery, we may have talked about that last week, I don't mean by mystery something that is like a mystery show that you're going to figure out the conclusion at the end of the story. Uh, nor do I mean by mystery something that's absurd. I mean by mystery something that is meaningful. It makes sense. There's something to it that makes sense. 
but it is also ultimately um, uh, surpasses the human power of comprehension. And in a certain sense, everything does on a certain level. Everything passes our level of complete comprehension. But God, most especially, uh, uh, transcends the human capacity for comprehension. Because, because uh, uh, for a lot of different reasons, some of which we talked about last week, but a lot more. So what we're saying in the mystery of the Trinity, though, is that the ultimate ground of being, the ultimate source of everything that is, is at its core love. And that love is, um, uh, is, um, uh, is, I'm grasping for the right words, the words that immediately came to mind were not good ones, but they, they didn't accurately express the idea. The love that is God is a love that is eternally expressing itself. So God is always giving himself in love. And that's why there's always a son. And the father and the son who always are sharing love between each other in some transcendent way that is difficult for us to comprehend. The closest thing we have to it is our interpersonal relationships. Some of you are considering you know, the Catholic faith because of how much you love someone. See how powerfully uh, uh, see how powerfully love can influence the direction of our lives. And so uh, uh, the love that we are getting a taste of in this world exists infinitely in God and eternally in God. And so the, the Father, what we call the Father from all eternity, gives everything that he is. And that's who the Son is, is the eternal self-gift of the Father. And the Son reciprocates that, gives himself back to the Father. And what proceeds out or what comes from their love is what we call the Holy Spirit. And this is eternally uh, and perfectly relational, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are always in perfect self-giving love. That's why there's a creation. That's why there's a world. Because this God, who is perfect love in himself, chose, not out of necessity, but chose to overflow, in a sense, in creation. And in that creation, eventually, creatures like us become conscious of ourselves as creatures that are called to love. And we spend our lives trying to find it. And so this life is a kind of journey or quest to find love in its eternal, unchanging form, ultimately, in God. Or to find that which can give to us the eternal love that we most want. I know that's a lot of stuff. All right, so this is a very, very deep mystery. It is the supreme core of everything that Catholicism is all about. Is that in, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, there's a line that says, the central mystery of the Catholic faith is the Trinity. The central mystery. This is the, the core of it all. If you want to rank the truths of the things that we profess to believe in their order of priority, this one's number one. This one is the absolute top. Uh, our belief in that God in his most central, most foundational level is self-giving love. And that's why we're unhappy until we find something like that in this life. That's why the, most, the, the saddest moments of your life will be those in which you lose someone you love. Because our lives are at root about love and finding love. So... Um, and that, that leads me to one last point here about this, which is, uh, which is 
that the mystery of the Trinity, as challenging as it is to get our minds wrapped around it, and I've spent a lot of my life thinking about this uh, because I grew up in a, uh, a form of Christianity that rejected the belief in the Trinity in favor of what I described earlier, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are just different modes of operation of God, like I'm Father, Son, and, hu- Father, Son, and Husband. God is Father because He created the world. He's Son because He comes into the world. He's Holy Spirit because He's at work in that world now. Uh, and when I discovered, after thinking about it for a long time, that that just didn't do justice to what the Scriptures are about, we, we held to a solitary view of God, that God is alone from all eternity. And, um, um, and I saw that, that that does not faithfully reflect what we find in the Scriptures on many, many levels. There's too much to say about it. And, uh, and so this is, to me, uh, one of the key reasons why I became a Catholic, ultimately, is because of the, of the Trinity. Uh, so, uh, that leads me to my final point here, which is the mystery of the Trinity, as profound and difficult as it is, and you'll never uh, comprehend it in the sense of exhaustively comprehend it. You can make some sense of it, but you'll never fully comprehend it. Uh, but it is supremely practical, I think, in, in, its, in its application. Uh, it helps me to understand, perhaps sometimes, while I'm not, why I'm not very happy. It's because I'm not giving myself to love as I should. I've become too selfish. Did I tell you about, did we talk about Groundhog Day, the movie, last week? I told you the story. That movie, I think, uh, is built on this premise, is that as in the first half of the movie, he was self-absorbed. In the second half of the movie, he was self-giving. And it made all the difference. It made his life meaningful in each moment. And so we find that to be true, I think, consistently, over and over again in our lives, is that to the degree that I turn in on myself and turn away from love, I become miserable. I may have mentioned uh, uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Did I mention that as well last week? In the Divine Comedy, uh, which is one of the most fantastic poems ever written, uh, certainly, uh, certainly uh, arguably the greatest poem ever written by a Christian. Dante was a Catholic Christian. Uh, he wrote the book in the early 1300s. And uh, Dante had been kicked out of Florence, uh, his hometown, uh, political things, and he was, he was banished from the city for the rest of his life. As far as we know, he never got to go back to, to Florence. And, uh, and he lost much of what he had. He lost his reputation. He lost much of his wealth. And he, he fell into a very deep depression. And he wrote the Divine Comedy in the midst of all that and, his, and sort of describing the way that he was able to work through that very deep depression. And the Divine Comedy begins, it's divided in three parts, if you're familiar with it. Um, it. The first part is Inferno, or on Hell. The second part, and it's magnificently arranged, uh, it's worth a, a lifetime of study. It's so intricate and, and so amazing. The second part of it uh, is called uh, Purgatorio, or on Purgatory. And the third part is Paradiso, or on Heaven. And so the, uh, the three parts of the book, the first one begins, the first opening lines are something like, I found myself in the middle of life in a dark wood. And he's going to be taken on a journey through hell. And what hell turns out to be is people getting what they want forever. They get what they want forever. But what they want is something self-centered. So they perhaps wanted and so they became thieves. Or they wanted and they became liars. They wanted and they became treasonous. They wanted and they became consumed by their lusts. 
They wanted, and so whatever they wanted, they get it forever, and they become uh, absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely turned in on themselves in selfishness, and they are miserable, in the most profound ways, miserable. And there's de there, the hell is constructed in, in Dante as this series of circles uh, that become increasingly bad. Like on the outskirts of it are lighter type of sins. As you get toward the center of it, you get to the worst of them where it becomes more and more um, um, painful. But it's a self-inflicted pain. It's a self-inflicted pain. And, and that is true. I mean, we taste that in this life all the time is that we often bring upon ourselves our own miseries by you know, running after things that are not really going to be satisfying or uh, doing things out of, out of hate or evil motives or whatever, uh, that often our deepest miseries are self-imposed ones. And that's what hell turns out to be, is self-inflicted misery. Purgatory, the second stage, is, is presented as a mountain with seven stories on the mountain. And it's hard to get up the mountain. It's hard to climb a mountain. And this is a difficult uh, ladder to climb or a difficult mountain to climb. Uh, but it's made up of, like hell, it's made up of these different vices, that, uh, these sins that people have to gradually let, let go of and arise uh, or go beyond. But in this case, a person is struggling against them because they're drawn by love to something higher. And so that's what allows a person to move up Mount Purgatory, which, you know, we could talk about Purgatory in the afterlife, but we could talk about Purgatory right here and now. <clears throat> right here and now, there are things we have to struggle with. Why would I struggle against certain tendencies? Well, because they're pulling me down. They're making me more selfish. They're damaging my life. They're out of step with reality. And so I have to struggle against things. And why would I struggle? It's because I want something higher. I want love. And there's some things that are incompatible with love. You know, uh, you know, one of which, generally speaking, is hatred is incompatible with love. And, and, and so on. And we can talk about so many things from there. And then heaven is where a person has finally reached this union with God and God's love so that those things down here are no longer pulling us down. And we've let go of the self. And Dante depicts those in heaven as having this kind of union with one another that they know each other perfectly. That you don't have to tell anybody anything, although they do because they relate their stories to one another, but they relate them to people who share with them their stories. That the, the lines between us are blurred. Not totally, but they're blurred so that we deeply love and know one another because we know one another in the light of God. So all this stuff, it seems to me, is profoundly enriching of my daily life. If I really believe these things, it affects the way I look at my wife, my kids, my job, my students, my colleagues. Everything is affected by it. It, it affects the way I think about you know, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life, uh, with uh, you know, the decisions I make about the future. It, it, it affects the way I think about how I want to improve. What do I want to... What, what kind of better person do I want to be and why? Well, if, my, if I know what the aim is, then it has a practical effect on how I think about what I'm going to be doing with my life and how I'm going to progress in my life. So it gives to us a compass that helps us to navigate our lives toward uh, its aim.
Okay, uh, let me stop now, and I'd like to read the creed slowly, and then I'd like you, if you haven't already done it, uh, to maybe make a few notes or at least have a question or two in your head, and after I finish reading it, I'd like to know what you see in the creed that maybe you have a question about or that you don't really understand, or what does that mean, or where did that come from, or that's confusing, something like that. And I'll make a list of some of these on this board, and, uh, and, then we'll, uh, uh, and then we'll talk about some of them, or hopefully all of them, uh, but we'll do the best we can with uh, the time we have. We've got about 30 minutes. All right. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So what I, what I hope this will be is uh, an activity, a hope, that will result in, when you go to Mass, or when you see this creed, whatever the circumstances, that it will make more sense. All right, so I want to target those things that you see or wonder about uh, when reading through this creed. We could go in a thousand different directions. I did this last week over at St. Michael's, and I got 10 or 15 questions from them. I wasn't able to finish them all, but I got 10 or 15 questions uh, that will probably be a different list from what you come up with. I've done this a couple times, and uh, each time I'm, I'm intrigued by the questions. So I hope also that you will ask uh, whatever question comes to mind. Not, uh, you know, don't think, well, this might make me look like I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm ignorant, or this might make me look like I'm I'm critical of Catholic faith, or whatever. Let this. I want this to be an open conversation, and nothing is off limits about the creed. So, uh, so let's let's think a little bit about it that way. What do you see? What uh, what questions uh, might you have about what we just read? Okay, I'll put that up here. What does the word apostolic mean? Okay, good. I'm just wondering what the significance of uh, 
mentioning Pontius Pilate. Okay. I kind of like how he's treated by the church. All right. Why was the Virgin Mary chosen? Again to judge the living dead, the living and the dead. Okay, great. Good. What else? Um, what do they mean for us? I mean, it says God from God and true God and true God. Very good. We got music in the background, huh? What else? What they do at the world visible and invisible. Visible and invisible, okay, good. What else? Uh, what they mean okay, when they say uh which one? What's it? <clears throat> you have spoken to the prophets. Yeah. Okay. Okay, why don't we pause, uh, keep thinking about other things, if you have other questions about the creed. But let's try to take a look at these real quick uh, and, and see where that goes. Uh, but if we get through these, we'll, we'll uh, start on some other ones, or, or I'll try to get some more from you. So let's kind of think about each of these. Uh, some of these are just definitional, you know, looking at terms. So the word apostolic. In the, in the Catholic faith, the word apostolic here is... Uh, referring to the fact that not only is our church built upon the apostles who were chosen by Jesus, uh, remember Jesus chose 12 apostles from among his disciples, so there were many people who followed and listened to Jesus, but he selected 12 among them. Uh, the number 12 is, is symbolically significant. Uh, the Old Testament, remember, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, the story really begins with Abraham uh, who God promised to him that he would have, uh, out of him would come a great nation of people uh, through which God would bless all the world. And Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had a son who was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the patriarchs or the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Old Testament mechanism through which God worked with his people was through these tribes that descended from these 12 uh, sons. So when Jesus chose 12 apostles, 
to inaugurate or to begin this new reality that he's creating that's going to have a, a global mission, uh, it was symbolic. It, it meant or signified that Jesus is starting something new, but that builds on and resembles the work that God did through his people in the Old Testament. So those 12 apostles uh, then uh, um, began you know, establishing Christian communities all over the, the Mediterranean world. And at a certain point, it was, it was needed, and, and there's a long story behind this, but at a certain point it was needed because the apostles couldn't do everything, and they eventually died. They had to include others in their work. And so they ordained other people. Ordained is just the, the ritual or the process by which uh, you sort of uh, transmit to others the authority to share in some of your work. So in this case, the apostles would lay hands on people and commission them to do certain works. By the way, the laying on of hands is a very ancient sign, a ritual sign, of transferring something to another. So when you lay your hands upon another in a religious ritual, that means that you're being imparted something. Something's being given to you. So those of you that, that are seeking to be confirmed, uh, the bishop uh, will uh, lay his hands upon you uh, and, uh, and sacramentally uh, give the... Uh, uh, the signs of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is he doing it? Well, because he received the authority to do it from another, and he received the authority to do it from another, and he received the authority to do it from another. And if you get to the end of that process, you'll be looking at the apostles. The apostles also ordain people to share in other ways their ministry, so, and that would include bishops, and it includes priests, and it includes deacons. So these are these formal offices of authority that are passed along from generation to generation through a sacrament of ordination. That's part of what we believe apostolic means. Apostolic means not only that we're built upon the original apostles, but that there's an apostolic succession down through the centuries of communicating or passing along the same faith and the same uh, sacramental structures in the church that existed from the very beginning. Okay? So our church is apostolic because of its connection to the apostles, both in its foundation and in its historical transmitting of the authority of the apostles to others, bishops, priests, and deacons. Okay? All right, um, Pontius Pilate. The fact that the creed mentions Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman authority in Jerusalem, at the time of the trial of Jesus. All right, so Jesus was uh, executed in the first century in Jerusalem, and the uh, Romans uh, were the uh, supreme authority governing the Mediterranean world at the time. And so in Jerusalem, you had two, um, two levels of authority. One was the Romans, who had the final word on things, and then you had a Jewish Sanhedrin or uh, council. The council did not have the authority to execute someone. And so the council deferred to Pontius Pilate, who was appointed in Jerusalem by the Roman emperor, uh, to keep the peace, to make sure taxes were taken from the people, and so on. 
And so Pontius Pilate was uh, the one who ultimately was coerced uh, by the religious authorities to have Jesus put to death. The creed mentions Pontius Pilate, I think, not only because his name is in the scriptures, but because it reminds us of the historical reality of the event. Uh, Jesus was put to death under Pontius Pilate. So it was at a particular moment in a particular phase of history that Pontius Pilate presided over this. Now, uh, you know, what happened to Pontius Pilate? Well, I think the ancient historian Josephus describes him as going mad. He went insane. Uh, uh, and, uh, and he was, uh, from what I can tell, a very brutal uh, ruler. But according to the scriptures, he didn't want to have Jesus put to death. He was coerced into it. Uh, but my recollection is that he died. Um, uh, I don't remember if he, if he committed suicide, but he died in sort of an insane state of mind, uh, according to Josephus, uh, who uh, uh, died. He traveled with Roman legions, and uh, he, was, he was captured and when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the surrounding uh, towns. Later in the first century, around 70 AD, uh, Josephus was captured, taken to Rome, and he wrote many histories, uh, uh, history books, uh, probably a thousand pages worth of writing, still survive to this day. And so it gives us one of the best historical accounts of things that happened in the first century. And he mentions a number of people in the biblical text, including Pontius Pilate. Okay? So this is just linking us or anchoring us. He wasn't a Christian, by the way. Uh, he was a Jew a non-Christian Jew. So anyway, the, the, the mention of Pontius Pilate just, I think, emphasizes the, the, that these stories are rooted in historical realities. Okay. The third question, this is an interesting one. Why was the Virgin Mary chosen uh, you know, for this, this profound, most profound of historical moments? Uh, why the Virgin Mary? And... Um, um, you know, I think, I think we could say some, some very broad things. First of all, uh, she was, you know, a person, a, a historical person who could be one who did this. And what I mean by that is her family lineage and Joseph of Arimathea, her husband, I mean, I'm sorry, Joseph, not Arimathea, he's a different guy. Joseph, her husband, uh, he too was of the ancestry of the line of David, King David of the Old Testament. There were promises that were made, prophetic promises, that, that he would have a son that would forever sit upon his throne. And so those were uh, associated with, um, in the Jewish mind, with the coming Messiah or king. And so Mary was of that lineage, and so she could potentially be the mother of the king that they were looking for and expecting. So that's my first observation. My second observation is that Mary appears to have been, and we believe firmly that she was, she appears to have been a profoundly humble uh, and deeply, um, uh, deeply devoted woman. And her humility shows itself in the story of the angel going to her and announcing that she's going to give birth to a son. And... And her immediate response is, how is this going to happen? Because uh, I'm not married yet. She was betrothed to Joseph, which meant in those days, uh, betrothal period was a little bit like our engagement period, although it had legal ramifications. So this would be a period of time in which a person would say, I'm going to marry this person, you know, 
one year from now. And for the next year, I'm going to prove that I really want to marry her by uh, refraining from being involved with anybody else, which would be considered adulterous. Now, they, weren't, they hadn't consummated their marriage yet, but I'm going to prove for the next year that she's the one for me by not uh, being unfaithful to her and by preparing a home uh, that we can live in. And so the man would work, he would, uh, he would build the home, uh, he would make sure that everything was set, he would prepare for the wedding, and, uh, and would make sure, most of all, uh, that he was faithful to his bride. At the end of the year, if everything had gone that way, and there were no testimonies against him, uh, and nobody brought any charges against him, uh, then they would consummate that marriage with the ceremony and everything that follows. Uh, however, if during that year one of them was unfaithful to the other, then they would go through a process of divorce. Uh, they would go through a process of annulling the commitment that was made. Um, by the way, if you ever wonder about the Catholic understanding of these things, uh, when, when we talk about an annulment in the Catholic tradition, it's not the same thing as a divorce. An annulment is, really follows this structure of what I'm describing here. An annulment is granted if you can show that a marriage uh, uh, proceeded from something that was defective at the time that the marriage began. So if there was some defect, uh, you know, and there's multiple things that could be there. So I can give you some obvious examples. Let's say, um, let's say I'm driving through some little town in Arkansas, and I get out of my car and put some gas in the car, and somebody comes out of the woods and puts a shotgun in my back and says, come with me, and they make me go to their cabin out in the woods, and he says, you're going to marry my daughter, uh, and, uh, and if you don't, I'm going to pull the trigger on this gun. And so I go through the ceremony, and I say I do, and she says I do, and he puts her in my car and says, uh, good luck, uh, hope it all goes well. Uh, that's not a real marriage because I didn't really give consent. I was coerced. I was forced to get married. Now, there are, now that's, that's an unlikely scenario, what I just described. Think about this one. Let's say two people uh, you know, don't intend to get married, but they're involved with each other, and she gets pregnant. And they say, Ugh, I, I'm, we're not ready to have a child, and you know, he's so immature, won't even keep a job, and, uh, but I don't want to get rid of the baby, I want to keep the baby. Okay, let's get married. And they get married, and then it falls apart in three or four years because they're incompatible, and he's, uh, you know, incapable of supporting a family. And didn't really want to to begin with. He just did it because he was pressured. Mom and dad forced him to, or whatever. And uh, and so in that case, uh, an annulment would almost certainly be granted because there was something defective at the very beginning. They didn't really commit themselves to each other. Uh, here's another example. Let's say two people get married, and they say, you know, I'm just trying this out. Uh, it seems like a good idea, uh, but look, if it doesn't work out, uh, I, I've got backup plans. Uh, and so uh, I'm, not I'm not 100% in on this, but I'm willing to give it a try. Well, that's defective. Uh, a marriage bond, in the Catholic sense, comes to exist when there is this fundamental gift of oneself to the other without reserve. So if I, if I enter into it with these deep reservations about whether it's going to work out or whether I'm capable of it, 
here's another, uh, I mean, I could go on with this forever, but the, here's another one. Let's say that someone enters into a marriage and they know that they are psychologically incapable of raising a child. Maybe somebody has experienced abuse and they themselves are, are afraid of their own ability. They don't even like children. And, and they have a child, and they're incapable of raising that child. They become a drug addict. I know of a particular case of this. Uh, they, they fall into drug use, and it, it ends up destroying their life. They're incapable of caring for the child. And uh, things come out about their psychological history and personal history that, that show that it is highly unlikely that this person was capable, psychologically, mentally, of entering into a, a family uh, commitment and marital relationship. There's something not there that should be there. In our culture, there are a lot of annulments nowadays because people often enter into marriage defectively. They enter into marriage not like 200 years ago where, where you get married, the understanding is you are married for life. In our culture, every, there's so much emphasis upon liberty of the individual, not making commitments, that people jump in and out of commitments all the time. And so there's a lot of, of defect in uh, the, the commitments that people make in our culture. Uh, so, uh, so understandably, in that context, understandably, uh, a lot of marriages dissolve. A lot of marriages don't endure uh, because people enter into them with a, a state of mind that doesn't allow them to continue in that relationship. So anyway, it's a, it's a messed up world. It's a very complex world that we live in. Uh, but that's a little bit about it. So back to Mary. Mary, uh, we're told, um, um, the angel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to a child. And she says, how's this going to happen? Because I'm, I'm not in a marital state. And the angel says, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that which is found in you will be of the Holy Spirit. And she says, according to Luke's gospel, let it be unto me according to your word. And so she, this is Mary's fiat. It's called uh, the Latin for let it be. Uh, the Beatles wrote a song by that name too. Uh, Let it be. All right, so, um, uh, um, so why did God choose Mary? I think because of her very deep openness to whatever God wanted to do with her. Let it be. Uh, I want to do God's will. So I think it's her, it's her humble heart. It's her willingness to go through whatever is necessary in order to do God's will. So it was ultimately, I mean we could look at it on multiple different levels, but I think Ultimately, God's choice of Mary grew from her very deep devotion to God's will, no matter what that might be. Um, a couple of these questions uh, overlap. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, and uh, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, in the Catholic tradition, like most other Christians, we believe that the historical process that we are a part of right now is going somewhere, right? It's got a trajectory. It has a purpose. And the ultimate purpose of the historical process is ultimately the arrival in its fullest form of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God where, where the things that ail us now, death most of all, but war and strife and sin and hate, all those things that are pulling us down, God is busily at work in the world bringing us or pulling us in a certain direction. Now, that direction of the full arrival of the kingdom of God is not achievable by human effort alone. We can try. Uh, we can with our faith and with our commitments and with, in our families and our communities and our country even. 
We can try to make things better and better, but we will never reach perfection in this world apart from divine power lifting us up for the final lift to the, the emergence of God's full expression of his kingdom in this world. That will only happen by divine power, only. And so we call that moment when history reaches its climax, which reaches its final end, we call that event by which we finally reach that goal the second advent or the return of Christ. Right? So Christ is that through which God, that power through which God will bring about the final victory over death and sin and evil in the world. Uh, and that accompanies the, the second advent. But at the second advent, or the, or the second coming of Christ, uh, the second advent of Christ will herald the end of history as we know it, not the end of sequence, but the end of history as we know it. All right. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, everybody. I just wanted to say hi. I got in at like midnight last night, so uh -oh. I'm exhausted. But uh, I have a class at 1230, so uh -oh. everything going okay? Great. Thank you, yeah. Mark. Sorry uh, to interrupt. Sure. Good to see you, Mary. Good sure. Good morning. Uh, um, so anyway, the, the, the historical process will reach its final fulfillment in the return of Christ. And, uh, and, and what will follow that will be the full manifestation of God's kingdom. However, that will also be a moment of final judgment, right? and it'll also be a moment of resurrection. So let me say something about resurrection. In the Catholic faith, we believe that human beings are not meant to be angels. Angels are beings that exist apart from matter. Uh, up here, uh, one of the questions that was asked was about the visible and the invisible. We believe that reality is not just visible things, and we all know that. I mean, there's stuff going on inside of you right now that I can't see. I can't see your thoughts. I can't see your, the things that you love the most. I can't see your love. You can try to express it. You can tell me your thoughts, and you can tell me what you love, but I can't see it as such. Well, in the Catholic faith, we believe that there are realities that God has made that don't exist on this plane of things in terms of being visible. I can see you there, but there's something more to you than what is seeable. And so the invisible is that which cannot be seen through this mode of seeing, through eyes and, and photons bouncing off of things. There are realities that can't be known that way. They have to be known another way. And so God is the origin of both, both the visible and the invisible. Whatever exists, God is the source of it. And so that's why it says here uh, that he is the maker of all things, both visible and invisible. So that covers both levels of reality, the things that photons bounce off of and come into our retina and those things that are beyond that. But at the, at the end of this historical process, there will be a resurrection. The resurrection, the idea of the resurrection is that we humans were made to be a mixture or a combination of visible and invisible, of matter and spirit. That's the kind of beings we are. We are, uh, in a certain sense, each of us is a microcosm of the whole universe. We are like the plants and the animals, and we're like the angels because we can transcend the, the material and sensory. And so we are a kind of microcosm of the whole universe. In each of you, you tell the whole story of God's creation, both visible and invisible, in you. And so the resurrection is our belief that death, which unnaturally separates the visible and the invisible aspects of what we are, will be reunited that God's ultimate plan is that we are glorified, but glorified in union with matter, the material world. 
And so the resurrection refers to the fact that our spirit or our, our invisible dimension will be reunited with the material. And it will be glorified, never to die again, but that it will be a union of matter and spirit. That's the resurrection. But the final judgment is where there's a final separation of those who open themselves in love to God's kingdom through Christ and those who said no and turned in on themselves. And that's the, separ the ultimate separation of those who want to participate in this kingdom and those who say, I don't want to be a part of that kingdom, I want to do it my way, and they turn in this direction. So there's an ultimate separation of those two, and that's what the final judgment has to do with. Um, uh, spoken through the prophets, that's just referring to the Holy Spirit, the, the thing that we talked about earlier, that the Holy Spirit is guiding along the writers of Scripture. And so the prophets here refer to the, the various people who wrote biblical books, in particular the Old Testament books, but all of those who uh, communicated the Word of God by inspiration, were guided along by the Holy Spirit. So it mentions that here because it's trying to tell us a little bit about what the Holy Spirit does in the world. The Holy Spirit inspires sacred scripture. That's an important part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Finally, let me say a word about uh, God from God, and then I think we're out of time. Uh, we got a couple minutes, but that's all. So let me just say a few words about God from God. And this is actually the hardest question up here because uh, a big chunk of this creed this part, if you're looking at the page where it says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father for all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. That section there is really the big reason why this creed was written, is to respond to a particular um, way of trying to understand who Jesus was, uh, who the Son of God is, uh, that uh, denied that he was fully God. Uh, so there was a, a, a priest by the name of Arius, A-R-I-U-S, who was denying the full divinity of Jesus. He taught that Jesus was a, uh, the Son of God, is a created God. Sometime at, before God created the world, God created his Son. And the church rejected that idea. The Son is not created. The Son is really God from all eternity. That the, the, the only way that there could be a beginning to the Son of God is if there was a beginning to God being love. And there was no beginning to God being love. And because God is always love, God is always giving all that he is. And that which he always gives most perfectly is what we mean by the Son. And so he's begotten of the Father, yes, but he's begotten by the Father before there was time and space. And so the begetting of the Son happens in the eternity of God. It never has a beginning. And so the Arians, or Arius, wanted to argue that uh, if he's the son, then he had to have been created. And the church said, no, those aren't the same thing. To be created and to be begotten are not the same thing. Uh, you know, I can create a picture, a work of art, but that work of art is not me. It's not a human. Uh, but I have a son, multiple sons. I have a son, and my son is fully human. He's as human as I am. He's not 50% human. He's not 75% human. He's 100% human. And so if, the, if God from all eternity has a son, his son is equal in nature to himself. And so when the creed says God from God, light from light, true God from true God, it's affirming that there's a distinction between the father and the son, but that the father begets a son from all eternity that is equal in nature. So the son begotten is not half God. The son begotten of the father is God. So he is God from God. Light from light, true God from true God. It's just helping us to, to understand both the Father and the Son are distinct,
but the Father and the Son are one in nature. They are equally God. Right? They are the same God, but distinct as person. Now, there's a lot, lot more to say about all this stuff, obviously. I mean, there's tons of stuff to say about all this. Uh, just remember, let me just leave you with, with a couple of thoughts real fast. Remember this. Number one, God is incomprehensible. So don't try to put God into a human box when we try to think about the Trinity. Always recognize we're talking about an ineffable mystery, that it is beyond my grasp and comprehension. So the proper response to this mystery of God is worship and adoration. The proper response to knowing about the Trinity is that I worship this God who is perfect love, infinite perfect love, uh, mind-bogglingly beautiful, these truths are, but they escape my full grasp, and therefore there's always a longing in the human spirit for this God that I can never exhaust. Think about an ocean that you can't, you can't get your arms around the ocean, but you can wade out in it. So we can, we can love this God, we can know this God, but we can never exhaust this God. Uh, and then secondly, the, the last point I would leave you with is, don't forget that the mystery of the Trinity is supremely practical. Think about this. When you think about your relationship, many of you are, are going to get married or you are in relationships. When you look at your children, when you, when you think about your work and your colleagues that you work with or whatever, think about them as an opportunity to taste a little bit or to grow a little bit in living out a Trinitarian faith. That a Trinitarian faith is one in which I see the other as a reflection of the love of God and an opportunity for me to love them uh, in the way that is appropriate for those relationships. Okay, uh, it has really been a pleasure uh, spending a little time with you. Uh, our time is up, uh, but, uh, but I really do appreciate uh, crossing paths with you these few weeks. And I hope and pray the best for you. And uh, hopefully our paths will cross again. Uh, if if I've ever, I can ever help you with anything, let me know. I work at Strake Jesuit. Uh, it's fairly easy to find my email. I'm happy to correspond with you. If there's anything that comes up that you might think I could be of help with, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to, to help. Uh, so anyway, uh, why don't we conclude with prayer, and then uh, we'll be on our way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for... This cathedral, thank you for these people that are interested in or wanting to learn more about the Catholic faith. Uh, my prayer this day is that you would bless us all with a deep sense of the beauty of our faith, the beauty of our creed. Uh, may you help us to, to better live it. Uh, may it affect the way that I see my wife, my children. Uh, may it affect the way that we see one another in this room and those that we are around in our lives. May we, may we uh, grow in our ability to live out uh, this belief in the Trinity, uh, which is you. And we pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Hope you all have a nice day, and uh, that it all goes well. <laughs>